Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Can we talk about the Ghostbusters thing for two seconds? Just because people say that it's a, a, it's a feminist bashing thing. It's just a god awful movie. It's no. a terrible movie. I like it, no, it's terrible. I it's a terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to compare that to the original the, Ghostbusters? This, we're, well, we're done having conversations about it. The original anymore. Ghostbusters won a whole bunch of Oscars, right? Because it was really high quality, really Obviously. good movies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's better than the Ghostbusters 2, though, right? No. Oh, Ghostbusters <laughs> 2 was just a... Th- no, it had pink slime and the... What was what's that awful artist with this song? Didn't they admit in Ghostbusters 2 that they made it up? That For me, that was a deal breaker. That they made it up? I think there was something. What they, do you mean they made it up? I can't remember. Maybe I misremembered. What? They just got on set and go, mm, I don't know what we're doing Stay here. Stay Marshmallow let's, Man. Let's doing something. <laughs> That was the first We've changed one. the format of our podcast where we talk about movies we haven't seen in 20 years. Oh, right. God, I was waiting for this day. <laughs> oh, welcome back, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I am your newly tanned, slightly burned host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi. Hi, Phil. Um, before we get started, uh, we're going to talk to you about all the internets and the Twitters and the Facebooks. Um, so if you like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, guest suggestions, um, anything you want us to talk about, um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then... We are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, After the uh, Democratic debates over the past week, uh, I would suggest buying uh, stocks in uh, Trump being president uh, in 2020. (laughs) That would be that would be my put. Um, But 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 yeah, but look, look, I'm predicted. It's great. There's tons of different markets, uh, lots of movement with uh, Democratic challengers. Uh, over the Kamala past week or so. Kamala was going down. Kamala was going down. And rightfully so. Yeah, Biden went up and then went down. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Well, he's confused. Andrew so. Yang is still at eight cents, which is insane. <laughs> that guy, you know, whatever you think about him, he shouldn't oh, be at eight cents. For he's up to nine. I just looked. He's up to nine, Bill. <laughs> this is crazy. He's Biden, nine no. cents. <laughs> oh, my God. But what's great for you guys, listeners, I'm talking to you and pointing to you through, through the ether right now. Um, Listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account uh, will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. So, for example, if you open up a $20 account, Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Um, like I said, all you have to do is use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20, uh, and check it out. Or you can just go to 
Barstool Politics three zero three three zero three one zero one one zero zero one. Just text the internet. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, you go to the site and text at the same time yeah. because he's a confused old man. But we're going to talk about that one later. We're going to talk about Al Sharpton first, I think, <laughs> which is so unfortunate. Oh, uh, all right, gentlemen. So Pres- President Trump's language has once again plunged the nation into a painful conversation about race. To review, on Saturday, Trump attacked Congressman Elijah Cummings, suggesting his Baltimore district was a, quote, rat and rodent infested mess where no human being would want to live. On Monday, he uh, widened the attack to include Reverend Al Sharpton, saying that he was a con man who, and this is my favorite part, hates whites and cops. Whites was capitalized, Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, these attacks mirror the president's attack of the four congresswomen of color collectively known as the squad. On Tuesday, Trump once again reminded everyone that he was, quote, the least racist person in the world. He also noted that, quote, what I've done for African Americans in two and a half years, no president has been able to do anything like it, unquote. Abraham Lincoln was unavailable for comment. Um, Trump's repeated outbursts have undercut efforts by Republicans to defend the president. I think it's important to note that Trump is the one forcing these conversations upon us. Uh, there are some within his campaign who argue that this may actually have a political advantage for uh, for Trump. Yet a Quinnipiac, God, I can't say that, Phil. Uh, a poll released on Wednesday found that a majority, roughly 51% of voters, now believe President Trump is a racist. Lots of breakdown here. Uh, how we understand these developments uh do we think this is a sound re-election strategy for trump how and should we how should we in the media respond to trump's tweets uh should we just ignore him phil where do you want to start uh, i don't know um <laughs> <laughs> you're not excited to talk about race once again <laughs> well i you know i don't know what to say about it that, mm-hmm. I, that's the point that i've i've sort of come to with this i, I don't um it, it, it's just it feels like we're kind of rehashing the same thing right there are people who it, it's just it's just obvious that this is you know we've we've talked about race throughout the two years that we've been doing this um and i think it's become increasingly clear that he's racist right or he's at least using racist rhetoric sure. with this yeah. so somebody pointed out i saw uh Somebody went back and looked at Trump and in and, and his Twitter feed and the number of times that he's used the term infested, right? And every single time it has been about an African-American or about an African country. Like it's about black people every time he talks about it. So, um, you know, I, we shouldn't just ignore him. I, this is where I'm torn, right? I, I don't want to ignore this. The, the president of the United States is saying racist shit um, on a national platform that deserves to be called out, but it also, you know, we're continuing to call attention to it. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's easy for me as, as a white person to sit here and say, we, you know, we should ignore it and quit calling sure. attention to it. If I were, a, you know, African-American, I would probably be, um, feel very strongly about it. But there are, there are uh, some within like communication studies who are saying like that what we should, like, the media has a responsibility not to amplify this, not to talk about this, and that you know we shouldn't respond to every single tweet. And I'm I'm torn as well on that. They have yeah. no desire to do that. Yeah, they, they brought it up in in, in the debates in in a very non uh, an extremely partisan way. Don Lemon asking a question goes: President Trump is pursuing a re-election strategy based in part on racial division. Yeah, you don't fucking know. I like I understand what the context sure. is and what the subtext is. But you don't know that, and you're moderating a debate where you're now putting that out there as a fact that is as is colored, for lack of a better term, colored the issue. It's such a tough thing, right? Because when we can get into this, like how you understand what is racism, and I think that's part of what's going on is as a country, we're 
disagreeing about what is racism and what is racist. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I. So those that are arguing that we're over covering this and that we should just ignore it, I, I, I feel like that's you can't do that, right? I that's, agree. Uh, yeah. It's one thing if it's Steve King. Or, you know, I'm trying to think of other examples. Or AOC, right? If we want to say that AOC is problematic. We've, but when the President of the United States says this, I, I just think you have to give more attention to that. You can't, you can't yeah. ignore it. I, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, there's, there's so many things to say about this. The, the, this attack coming like days after essentially the Republican Party rallied around this idea of if you're going to be critical of the U.S., just leave, right? Yes. If you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. And, and that, that was all in response to the, um, you know, the, the feud with the, what's the, why can't I think of the name? What are the four, what are they called? The squad. The, crew, the, gang, squad. the, squad. the squad. There you go. <laughs> That's so stupid. Anyway. Yes. Um, <laughs> but to like immediately turn around and critique, you know, chunks of America as, as you know, rat infested or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, the hypocrisy of it all is is insane. It doesn't matter, right? I mean, this is where <laughs> it, do, it doesn't matter. Um, the you know the statistics show that uh, that Cummings district is you know it, the uh, economically it is above the median for the for the country. Like it is better off than many of the sort of of the kind of Trump strong districts. I, I, Trump doesn't know a damn thing about Cummings district, right? right? I mean, this was he, he, what he knows is that there's a black man who represents the district and that's the the attack that he levels. And and we should mention that this is coming because uh, Cummings is uh, the the chair of the um, oversight committee and they're subpoenaing uh, Javanka, uh, right? emails, uh, yeah. Yeah, emails from Jared and Ivanka. And they're also there's another thing that they're pursuing. But I mean, this is he's lashing out yeah. because Cummings is coming after him. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's lashing out in a Donald Trump way, which is there's not a lot of depth to it, right? There's somebody who's doing machine. something to him. It's a, it's a, it's a black man. And so that's the, the nature of the attack. I'm not sure. I, I get, I think maybe one of the things I'd be interested to talk about is, um, people, I see this with, uh, even with the debates, I see this, there's this tendency in the media to boil everything down to this kind of horse race kind of, you know, everything's a strategy. It's what he's trying to do. I, I, there, there is an element of strategy to this in that this may be effective for Trump, but I'm not convinced it's strategy. At this point, when this is how Trump responds all the time, this is just Trump. I don't think Trump is sitting around thinking, hey, this is how I'm going to win by mm. doing this. I think he realizes that that plays well. Crowds seem to like it. He gets, you know, positive responses from people on Twitter. But I don't think he's thinking, you know how I'm going to win this next election. It's going to be to exacerbate racial tensions, to get, you know, white voters who are sort of disenfranchised or, or feeling that way to vote for me. I think it's this is him. This is just the what is a, mm -hmm. a, an African-American man comes after him and he lashes out with this. I, I think that's it's there's just not that much. I don't mean this in like he's he's dumb. There's just not that much depth to it. I don't think he's he's thinking four steps down the road. He's just doing. Um, and so I, that's you know, there, we could have a conversation about whether it will be effective. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think there's another conversation to be had about I, this is just Trump, right? This is who he is. Yeah. This is who he is sort of laid bare. Yeah. I, I mean, in in that context, though, if that is the, the scenario that we're going with and he is that person, he is that reflex machine that we've talked about. 
he's done this to lots of people, regardless of, of race or, or religion or, or gender. He's attacked members of his own party in, in a very similar way. He's completely dismantled parts of the government that no longer have people running them because he didn't agree with an investigation or the way that they were handling something. And they're just, they're, they're gone. And he lambasts them on, on Twitter, um, which makes me think that this isn't necessarily, and I, I understand what, you know, the, the stats of what he's saying at the language that he's using with particular people is, again, to use our term, problematic to <laughs> say the least. But he's, he's just vitriolic with, with everybody in these situations. Like you said, there is a reason that he's doing this. And I frankly uh, agree with, with this assessment that there is, there's a problem that he sees and he's going to cut it off at the pass by attacking the source of that problem. Not because it's a black man, yeah. but because it's the person who is there that's causing the problem. I don't think it's much deeper than that. There isn't a ton of strategy to it's, this. It's hard because we're putting Trump on the couch here. I, I think he, I, mean, I, I honestly think when he says he thinks he's the least race, racist person in the world, he truly believes that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he instantly gravitates to these tropes when pushed and you're right nick he attacks everybody but he attacks people of color in a distinct Differently. way yeah and, and again he may not even appreciate the way in which race is playing out but to your point phil i think this is really interesting because I, I i i totally agree with both of you this is not a strategy this is trump being trump and then the republicans and his administration have to think about okay how do we make this into strategy and it's kind of an interesting question because I'm not sure whether it's good a good campaign tactic. It may be. I mean, I I, I tend to think that this is going to come back and and bite them. I mean, you you're running on a racial platform or identity politics, whatever we want to call it, this is not going to appeal to suburban moms. I mean, there's the, his base is already mobilized. I don't know if this grows that that group. What do you, you think? I don't yeah. know, man. You think it it will work? I I, I mean, if we're you know, well, Quinnipiac is is a whole yeah. another animal to talk about and the the um, accuracy of their polling. But if we're talking about fifty one percent, I would imagine somewhere between a three and five percent um, margin of error. We're still looking at half the country. Like there yeah. can't be a tremendous amount of shift there. You haven't really changed anything at that point. It may be a reflection of partisanship, but, not necessarily. Yeah, but fifty one. I mean, if fifty one percent of a, if half of Americans think that he is. Oh racist so racist has it, it's there aren't many people who are going to be like yep he's racist and that's a good thing i mean there might be some people but racist is a you know a pejorative term so i i would think that the if 50 percent of people are saying he's a racist that means that 50 percent of them think that there is some you know that's a problem uh with him and that's not you know that would mean that everyone else so in order for that to be an okay strategy everyone else who doesn't think he's a racist would have to be willing to vote for him and you would have to guess there's some people who don't think he's racist but also don't like him as president for whatever reasons sure, sure. and so yeah. then you when you add that in it's a i i think hmm. so i tend to think that this is uh this is it's not a winning so here's, here's, why, here's why I pause. Epiphany. Racism is not a winning presidential strategy. <laughs> well, I mean, th so this is why I pause is that it is uh, awful <laughs> to me that it's as effective a strategy yeah. as it is. Right. So I, I'm not saying that it is ineffective. Um, I think it's effective with with big chunks of, of, of the American public. And I think that that is in, that's really disheartening. Um, 
but I don't think it's effective with a big enough piece of of the public to be a winning strategy. You mentioned, Bill, yeah. um, suburban moms, but it, there have been polls that have shown um, not just I mean suburban suburban moms, right? Yeah. That sort of demographic, whatever you call it, uh, was really big in the midterm elections and, and was a big part of why Democrats did well. Um, there are a number of polls this this last week, um, last two weeks, that have said that uh, essentially blue collar women, like so women of, you know, we, we were talking about college educated women, we're talking about white women, these, this is white women, white yeah. women without a college degree um, are increasingly citing him as racist and sort of seeing and, and the corresponding um, having essentially negative views of Trump as a result. So, Which is a problem uh, because those women voted for Trump in 2016. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I, that's where I mean, it doesn't take, you know, there, you're, I think you're, I think in some ways, I, I think you're right, Nick, and that there's a big chunk of his base that isn't, they're not going, his base is not going to be turned off by this. Right. But it's, it's about, um, I think, two things. There are some people who might have voted Trump and have maybe regrets or second thoughts about it. And it's also about mobilization, which is that I don't know that race is going to be the mobilizing factor for, you know, blue collar women, um, you know, white women. And it will be a mobilizing factor for minorities on the other side. Right. Mm -hmm. So the number of people who are who are mobilizing in opposition to Trump will sort of offset that. And I, and I, I, I just I really hope it's not a winning strategy. No, go ahead. Well, the one thing I would is I I get the sense that Democrats don't know what to do with this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they they last night, or actually the last two nights of the debates, they kind of struggled, and and some of them would come out and say like very slowly, Donald Trump is a racist, but but it's clear as a party as a whole, they don't know, and, and I think part of them are part of it is they're looking back to 2016, where Hillary Clinton ran a campaign to say Donald Trump is an awful person, he's a racist, misogynist, all these things. And he was elected. Right. So I don't know if attacking Trump for being a flawed person is necessarily good. No. But, I, but as you said, Phil, I just I just can't imagine the country would would that's, knowing that's, what they do that's now. That's the issue. I know, this right? is the core issue. That this is why you will lose. Oh. This is why you. This is the same issue that you had four and what four, three two years and a half. Ago. Yeah, what, two yeah, and a half yeah. almost three years ago. That when you paint the picture, especially we, we talked sure. about the media prior to this yeah. and the way that the the narrative is framed around this. When you ask people their opinion whether or not Donald Trump is racist, they're not going to come out. You even said like right. there are people out there that. We kind of know we're voting for Trump, but would never say yeah. it. These are those people. These are people that think, yeah, I've been to Baltimore. It is a shithole. I've been to ba yeah. Baltimore yeah. many times. It is a shithole. I'm sorry, guys, if you live in Baltimore. It just is. We just lost but, all our Baltimore sorry. listeners, Nick. Bye, guys. <laughs> My point is that th this is the fundamental issue that is at the core of the the lack of understanding of of the other side yeah. like you guys don't understand that there are people out there that will say this and potentially move the needle one percentage point in the other direction but that's not the 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 truth but of the situation i i think <clears throat> the flip of that is also true though which is that i think um Trump is the defining issue in this election for Democrats too. So I, I mean, I, if you're an African American or you're you're you know you're Latino or whatever, this is like Trump is like coming out and saying Trump is a racist and he's doing that, that's the thing for you. And so to it's where I think about Democrats who are so afraid oftentimes of I don't know ups not upsetting. It seems like the so often they think about what they're saying in terms of how Republicans will respond. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, you know, you're in that sense, you're right. Like, you know, if you come out and talk about Republicans as if you if you cast all Republicans as racist or you, you know, tag uh, some of Trump's policies as racist, that's going to piss off some Republicans and they're going to push back. But if you don't do that, there's a whole swath of people on the other side who are dying to get out to vote, who like see Republic Democrats who are unwilling to say things and to be critical. And who's going to get fired up about that? Does that make sense? It does. No, it makes perfect sense. But this is also the issue, like watching the debates, and we keep going back to the debates, yeah. and I know we, we're we'll going to talk to about this, it later, yeah. that at least from my perspective, the people who had the most salient, down-to-earth, kind of, not middle-of-the-road, but um, sort of centrist, centrist yeah. policies that made sense were the people that were, were, they were on the outskirts. They were the generic ones. And everybody else who was talking about Trump would get applause and, and kind of feed into that. And we've talked about it, yeah. that this is this this continuing need to drive towards the fringes. And like I, I agree, it's a, it's an effective strategy to some extent, but I like I, I don't think it's a good strategy in any a, a, a positive strategy, no. I guess I should say. I, as I think about this, so Trump winning in 2016 happened, right? And we were all shocked by it. I don't know. It's debatable. Yeah, right. And then, but then we, the, the, the idea is we'll have another four, we're having another four years, we'll have four years of him. And if we reelect him, that's a, that's another reflection on the country, right? Because right. we kind of knew who he was. There was the Access Hollywood, all the stuff. We knew everything, well, a lot about him. But now we'll have years and years of being exposed to it. It's in our face. He's not running from it. He's tweeting, you know, he's, he's racist tweets, all of this stuff. And if we reelect him, it's, a, it's an entirely different reflection on our country. So I think that does tend to mobilize those who are frustrated with what he represents. So I, I don't know. I mean, I... I've talked to so many people who say like that he got elected once was troubling, but if he's reelected, it's devastating uh, because of yeah. what he has done. You know, and, and I, this is where on, this man. is where I come back to the Democratic yeah. strategy. If I'm a Democrat and I, if my concern is if I call Donald Trump a racist, that's going to make people, uh, you know, that's going to turn people off to yeah. my candidacy. If you're a voter and and calling Donald Trump a racist upsets you, you're not voting for Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden anyway, right? right? right. You're voting for Donald Trump. And so to, to sit, spend so much time worrying about what the right or what what Trump's base, how they will react to um, how you, you know, handle this is, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that seems that, that seems like a, a faulty strategy, right? Like, do say what you what you believe. Stand yeah. up on like That's this is fine. what you think. Say it and try to gather people behind you. Yeah, I I I would agree. But there, you're at some point you're going to need a better point than Donald Trump is a racist to beat him. Like realistically, there there are still economic factors to talk about. There's immigration to talk about. There's um, what were they talking about? Healthcare, healthcare to talk about, which yeah. they were all over the fucking place. Oh, um, we'll get to that next. Yeah, and realistically, <laughs> it's going to be hard to beat him on several of those issues, just because of the scenario that yeah. we're in right now. It happens to be kind of positive. Well, the other thing, and this kind of circles back to something you were hitting on earlier, Nick, is I think our conceptions of what is racism are shifting over time. And it's gotten caught up sure. in this partisan dynamic. And mm -hmm. we've talked a little bit about the demographic change that's going on, right? The country is becoming much more diverse, and most of that diversity is gravitating toward the Democrats. And then the Republicans are, are increasingly a, a white, older, Christian, conservative party. Now, what's going to happen? I mean, and we're seeing that divide in terms of understanding racism and the data. So this is something that I just saw in one of the articles this week. 
In 2018, 33% of Trump voters said it was racist for whites to use the N-word. So only 33%, which is low, right? 86% of Clinton supporters said it was racist to do so. And when you look at the history of that, the Democrats and Republicans used to be fairly close in that interpretation. And what we've seen in basically a decade is that on a variety of different issues of race, there's this separation within the parties. The parties have different conceptions of what is or is not racist. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that, that that's deeply troubling when you think about demographic where you've got a Democratic Party that is a whole bunch of different diversity and a, and a, a Republican Party, which is increasingly white, right? I mean, this is, this is going to continue to play so, out in these ways. Is it something that... Hmm. Which isn't to say I, so that I, the Republicans are racist, but th- that you're going to have a dynamic of white versus diversity, right? And then that, that's going to be... That's going to sure. make it harder yeah, to talk if, about it, weight yeah, race. If the, the subtext of that is that there is almost no diversity on the Republican side, or that their concept of racism is like it's not it's 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 not the the quote unquote racism that you know the right it's just know, different the right? anathema thing to the the Democratic conception of it. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. It, which is what we're seeing play out today, right? In a, in a sort of smaller way, which is that Republicans are are saying what Trump is doing isn't racist, and Democrats are saying, no, it's clearly racist. And it, right. my thought is this is only going to get worse and worse as time goes yeah. by. Mm-hmm. So is it, would the strategy, so I, let's go, um, I, I, I kind of I keep thinking back to the, the Al Sharpton thing, because mm-hmm. I, I saw a number of people who were pointing out that uh, the Democratic response, that what, what Trump said was essentially this racist attack on Al Sharpton. Um, but the way the, Repub- the the Democrats responded to that, a number of them were critical of. Maybe, maybe in a, in a, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, because there, I've seen so, several people who said that, you know, calling out those, those remarks as, you know, racist or problematic is one thing. Rallying to the defense of Al Sharpton is another thing, mm-hmm. right? Which is which is that which is what Democrats sort of felt the need to do to distance themselves from from Trump's comments. And mm-hmm. so, if in that like sort of polarization, right, Democrats tend to sort of go to the other extreme, which is yep. to feel the need to kind of double down or to to defend anything or to you know push back against anything that's racist. And would they be better to denounce? You know, when asked about it, yeah, he's you know th- that's racist and denounce it and move on to policy. Mm-hmm. Or do they need to be hammered? I'm torn on this, mm-hmm. right? Because I, you know, I it, it's something that shouldn't be just kind of dismissed and and we move on from it. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, is there is there a way to talk about it to denounce it as racist to point out that, but not to sort of play into the Trump game, right? To, to be able to sort of point at, point it out. Because, because the thing is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those, the comments that Trump made about Sharpton were, were I would say, were racist. Um, is Al Sharpton this hero? No, right? Some of the stuff that Trump <laughs> right. said, right, about Al Sharpton being a con man, um, you know, we could make right. an argument for some of that stuff. So oh, he's not, there's plenty he's not of, exactly yeah. a pillar of, uh, of, of, you know, the, the yeah. Yeah. anyway. But in this world, this you, your your choices are to if you're a Democrat, you either embrace Sharpton right. or Trump's not you a racist. You backed right? yourselves into a into, <laughs> well, a, but, but I mean, that's into just, a corner. Exactly, and it, that's that's it's the same thing that happened with the squad. Yeah. You have to now take them in and mm-hmm. rally around them. And frankly, they they just they don't poll well. Like no. they're they're extremely confrontational, and people don't just don't like them as people. Right, it's it, the Democrats. It's legislatures. This is part say. of the. I think part of the reason the Democrats are uncomfortable trying to deal with Trump because he's put them in this position where they want to condemn him, but but they don't know how to do so. They don't know if it's going to be electorally positive. 
Uh, they don't want to always uh, align themselves with people like Al Sharpton and AOC, and they don't. Sp- I mean, you saw this in but the debate you have too. To. You're forced to. That's that's where our no, politics you're not is forced. How are you forced to though? Why couldn't you say that 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 that? Uh, I mean, you could you could critique Trump's comments without doing. Elizabeth Warren came out and like pr- heaped praise on Al Sharpton as the. So yeah. you could you could critique those statements without necessarily latching yourself on. Like, you know, I I can. So I if if somebody's attacking AOC and I don't like it, like I don't agree with her policies or I think that she's yeah. you know she she should play a more minor role in the party i can attack i can critique the comments that are critical of her without saying uh without necessarily tying myself to you know her and saying that you know my my future is now bound to aoc they're, yeah. they're two separate things but I, I mean pelosi tried that like she she tried to criticize him and she was deemed racist for doing that people in their own party can't do it you cannot get away from this specter that is looming over everybody at this point and I, even within your own party it's it's now a part of of what makes up the platform and and like I, again you guys have backed yourselves into a corner it might be it might be a nuance that is no longer possible in this sort of media environment where if you condemn trump for what he's doing to Al Sharpton, you have to ban. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm not going to defend Al Sharpton. He's not somebody that I want to, you know, hitch my wagon to. But I don't know if that type of nuanced detail can be explained. No. Uh, and if you were to criticize Al Sharpton, Trump would just use that to hit you, right? I mean, so it's it's a really it's a difficult place to be. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to be in the world that you're describing, Phil, where you could yeah. say what Trump is doing is wrong. But I think what's going to inevitably happen is you 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 get yeah. Camped. They, they keep. They absolutely should, and they won't. But I'm sorry. I keep coming. Ar- no, I keep coming around to hoping, and maybe this is, you know, maybe this is stupid. Uh, but I keep coming around to this this hope for a world in which politicians just stay, say what their principles are. Say yeah. say what you believe in, and if you lose at the polls, then oh well, right? Yeah. You yeah. you were you know say standing up for policies you believed in, for ideas you believed in, and the voters have a choice on that. And yeah. I and it just feels like there's so much um uh, yeah of, of the you know checking the polls seeing how this will play before i make a statement about things mm-hmm. um and and that's you know i i know it's a whole different world in in sort of trump world versus the the democratic world but trump does that right like he's not, he's not consulting polls no, no. he's saying stuff and that's that's getting people behind him i not that i i do not want the trump version of a democrat right that's no. not what i'm that's not what i want but i would like someone who essentially says i'm i am running for office because i think i have ideas and if you like the ideas, then vote for me. And if you like the other guy's ideas more, then vote for them. Yeah. And it just it's it's yeah, it's a I think a good metric of that is is Mitt Romney, who, you know, was elected on the idea uh, the, on the principle. I'm going to call Trump out on his, his issues and he's gotten into office and he won't Does say nothing. a thing. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and Mitt Romney is safe. You know, people in Utah aren't going to vote Mitt Romney out. He is he, he's going to continue to be reelected, yeah. and he he is afraid of saying things anymore. And I think that speaks to the climate that we're in. When somebody who's in a safe safe state is still quivering, uh, worrying about the president attacking him. No. But I mean, in terms of Democrats, do you know who those people were? Those were the people again in the debates who had really good ideas, who were questioning people who had exceptionally extreme quote-unquote revolutionary concepts that had no idea how they were going to pay yeah. or, or implement anything and we'll never hear from them again. Well, they have really good concepts, sound concepts, and probably and obviously would challenge Trump 
would, would, would challenge the entire structure of the system, but we will never, ever hear from I, them again. I, well, well, I mean, we'll see as it goes forward, but it feels to me like that's part of the energy behind Elizabeth Warren yeah. is that, and I know that she's, you know, she's, there are people who really hate her and there are people who really like her, but uh, it feels like she's basically saying this is, you know, she's, she's out there saying this is what I believe in. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't feel... Uh, like she's conducting her her campaign according to what polls say the she should she should be campaigning on. She's out mm. trying to convince people yeah. of her ideas. There's, now she's not in the lead right now either. Right. But I I feel like that's part of the reason why she has kind of emerged a little bit from the pack. We'll mm -hmm. jump to that in a second. But I know I I, think, I totally agree. Like whether you agree or disagree with Elizabeth Warren, there's an authenticity to her campaign that that I I think the other Democrats are struggling to have even yep. Bernie to some degree. Oof. Oh. All right, should we talk beers? Yep. All right. Phil Phil what do you enjoy? Uh, I'm drinking a Portland Pale Ale. This is from um, Lone Pine Brewing Company out of Portland, Maine. And I, I had this one a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a classic standard uh, well, it's an American pale ale. I, I, I've said before, I, I, as I drink more and more of these beers, the more I, I have found that I like the American pale ales, maybe even more than the IPAs lately. Um, and, and this one's fine. This one's not, it, it doesn't you know, stand out as a blow me away beer, but I, I, um, I, I really like it. I like that it's got the kind of hoppiness, a little bit of the bitterness of an IPA, but it's not quite as in your face. Um, yeah, I'll probably buy more of those. I like American pale ales. Yeah, they're, they're delicious. Yeah, mm -hmm. Nick, what are we enjoying? We are having a um, is that a good governor? Yeah, yes. from uh, Midnight Pig, oh. uh, which is out of Plainfield, which is just Close by. down the road from us. Um, it is a, a double red IPA um, pairings: grilled steak, uh, tacos, <laughs> uh, chili mango. Um, it's it's really good. Isn't like it? You, yeah, you, I I didn't really think about it until you you brought this in. Everything we've had from them has yeah. been really good. Um, yeah, it has that that really kind of robust red taste to it with like a, a really just kind of natural um, kind of flowing um, hoppiness yeah. to it. Yeah, um, it's really good. It's 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 hoppy in the way that a double IPA should. There's a little bit of caramelness to it, mm -hmm. caramely or whatever to that. Um, and double IPAs can be a lot, but this is just a fantastic. It's like a perfect mix of the double IPA and a red. This is a fantastic beer. It's a really I'm good very, beer. I'm very happy with this. Good job, guys. A <laughs> yes. plus. Yes. Um, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, just go to uh, Untapped on iOS or Android. Um, look for Barstool Politics on there. You'll find all of our reviews. All right, speed round. We've yes, been sir. hitting at the Democratic debate, so let's dive into it. So after five or six additional hours of Democratic debates this week, oh. a couple things are clear. One is that there's a widening rift between the party's populist and, I'm sorry, uh, centrist and progressive wings. On Tuesday, the centrists tried to gang up on Warren and Sanders, whereas on Wednesday, the progressive joins, joined progressives joined force to target Joe Biden. Speaking of Biden, he did better in this debate, but he was still real, a really shaky frontrunner. Sleepy. Yes. Biden continues to have strong national numbers, but he slipped in some of the early primary states. Many had hoped Biden would use his second debate to reassert himself, yet his performance continued to raise some questions about whether at 76 he's up for the moment. For me, the most interesting dynamic is this battle between the more centrist and progressive wings of the Democratic Party. We saw it play out in the debate over health care, immigration, education, and other issues. Phil, some of the more exciting candidates fall on this progressive wing, yet it's not clear that voters, both in the primary and the general election, are on board. What's, what's your read of all this? Shit. Um, <laughs> ding! It's going. Don't worry about it. Five minutes. 
Um, you know, I so I didn't. I, I will admit that I did not watch these debates. I was off in a cabin in the White Mountains, and it was mm. pretty fantastic. I, I did, was not sad about not getting to see twenty <laughs> Democrats yeah. debate, um, but I've watched a few clips and I've read some of the analysis and and whatnot. I, you know, I. <sighs> I feel like it's, I mean, I think this is very clear. This is a, a tension that we've known existed in the Democratic Party for a while. It was the tension that was brought out in the last election with, with Hillary Clinton versus Bernie, this kind of progressive versus um, more kind of old school Democrat. It's representative of, a, I think, a generational change that's happening in, in, um, in Democratic politics. Um, so it's not surprising that it's playing out here. I, I think... Um, I don't. I'm not as worried about it. Uh, I mean, some of the some of this is, uh, you know, th this is the. It is a little problematic for a party. In the good old days, uh, these sorts of feuds and disputes would have been worked out in smoky back rooms, and the the party would have presented their candidate, and people would have sort of gotten on board. When you have it, this fight happening out in the open. Um, it leads to divisions and tensions, um, especially, you know, this is this was something that the Russians picked on and played on played on um, in the last election. So it, it could be a potential problem, but we're still really early. Like, I, I just there aren't that many. I mean, if the three of us didn't pay that close yeah. of attention to this, like the people just aren't watching at this point. Um, I, I think that will, you know, as we and. And that's on the. I think that's also the format of these debates is awful. And and handing it over to hours. CNN, oh. and with twenty people, I yeah. mean, there need to be. They need to get it down to five or six candidates. Yep. Yeah. They don't need to have CNN. CNN has, um, you know, mixed motives here, right? Yeah. CNN wants to see fights. They want to see sound clips. They want to see people yelling at each other. And so you end up with moderators sort of egging on yeah. these fights that was the nature of the and, questioning oh it was terrible right yeah and giving like 30 seconds to respond like <laughs> right. the democratic party needs to like get a hold of these debates and actually mm -hmm. structure them in a way in which that stuff that i talked about i mean the 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 debate about you know decriminalization of of uh, immigration right those questions about single payer those are real debates that need to be played out and the average voter doesn't go out and do that sort of research and they rely on these conversations to figure out where they stand and the party needs to be convincing their voters of those mm -hmm. and this format is terrible yeah. for that I talked a lot. Sorry. Well, just, no, you're pretty good. <laughs> the format. So, did you guys watch? I guess you didn't see the intros. Oh, I saw. Yeah. Oh, that was insane. It, it was, was like a MMA fight or yeah. national football. I yeah. mean, it was it was it was terrible. It was. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, I, I, I feels right. Like realistically, this is the equivalent of Walmart putting their Christmas shit out in September. Um, like just, I, why why are we doing this? Yeah. You know, like we talked about it last time. What were we talking about last time? That was six. Oh, the um the the Mueller hearings. Yeah. Um, six hours in the middle of the day, no one's going to pay attention to that. You think people are going to tune in for three hours for two nights in a row to listen to people bitch about the same things that we've heard about previously uh, from a network that a lot of people don't trust, frankly? And uh, like you said, their motives are, are mixed at best. Yeah. Um, and realistically, even the candidates were exceptionally hostile towards the moderators and CNN in general, you know, this is ridiculous, you know, we shouldn't be put under these conditions and something needs to be done about this. Almost like they were the enemy of the people, but I'll leave that, you know, just <laughs> let that lie. Um, and the candidates themselves, like, you're right, like, if this was done behind closed doors, you would not see this just bickering, just knife-throwing bullshit that, that, you know, is not supposed to technically be part of, of the process until we get later on in the cycle. 
you know, we're, we're talking about healthcare and we're focusing on dismantling an industry that employs 3 million Americans and nobody had a good answer to that. Um, we need secure borders, but we're still going to decriminalize uh, illegal border crossings. Everybody said that and just kind of avoided the question in general. Well, I think there was no there was, there was tension on that one, right? Because I mean, yeah. so Biden last night said he wasn't going to right know, between it, the right. two right. sides of, of sure, the, but, but yeah. both nights that was an issue, right? And right. I think there's this really strong contingent of the centrist within the Democratic Party who are uncomfortable with but, with universal health care, uncomfortable with decriminalizing the border, uncomfortable with free college education, right? I mean, you're seeing that those are right. those are real issues, right. and, and it was ugly shit the, about the yeah. people saying that. That's a, <laughs> That's a good example of what I what I, I of kind of what I was trying to get at in some ways. Um, you know, like the, there there are people who the diehard Democrats, the people who are you know really invested in this, that are you know the people who show up at every presidential event here in New Hampshire. They know about that question or that debate about decriminalization. The average listener doesn't, and mm-hmm. and and if you didn't know about that debate, you didn't learn anything about it other than two people yelling at each other about whether it was good or bad. Right. If you could change that again, if you had five candidates, you know, boil it down and put Biden and Bernie and you know Warren and Harris and you know Booker and Buttigieg, put you know the six kind of yeah. top polling guys, guys and uh, the men and women up there. And then have like a debate, have a two hour debate on immigration, right? Give each person five minutes to talk about your policies, what you would do, go down the line and then have, you know, conversations and points back and forth to actually clarify and sell yourself, sell the ideas. And it's just we're just never I don't I mean, again, that's probably as naive as having people stand on principle and hope they win. But uh. <laughs> well, a couple of things that stood out to me for the debates. And I don't, real quick, I, real, don't, <laughs> one is that of all those candidates. So what do we what do we have? 20 candidates? Yeah. Uh, Warren and Buttigieg are the two best at taking complicated issues and presenting them in a way that people can understand. Again, separate whether you agree or disagree with them. Those two are really, really good at that. Yep. The rest of them, you heard them talking, and it was sort of oh, they would just go to a different question yeah. or something that they had talked about previously. Right. They didn't give a shit. But Warren and Buttigieg do a really nice job of presenting things that are accessible to a broad audience. The other thing is, and I think this is maybe the biggest story, is that I don't know what's going on with Biden. He needed to hit a home run in this debate, and he didn't. He, didn't. he stumbled. And Text if you're me on your jitterbug, right? If you're if you're a Democrat and your number one goal, and maybe this should be the number one goal, is is defeating Trump. He's the guy, right? He's the one. Well, the Democrats, the Democrats in general, are a more centrist party than the Republicans. The country is more centrist than extremist. So he's the guy that gets you to that, and you want him to come out and do good. Oh no, it was just jackals. He was he was <laughs> he was just him. okay. Uh, and and I don't know if the the long campaign is going to play out well for him. So I, no. this is this it's, is concerning for the party. I, I agree that the response that I from you know people who who were writing about the debate seemed to think that he this was a, a not that it was a good debate for him but the fact that it wasn't bad was good for him. Ooh. His numbers fell after the last debate and then kind of reclimbed back to where they were before. But I I'm like I'm I agree with you. I think he has to do something else cuz the, the name recognition has him where he is now, but over time that's going to fade. You've got to get people excited yeah. and not just viewing you as the default choice. There's something tell me if I'm wrong here and I I'm going to probably piss off some Hillary supporters. Um, but it feels to me like I, I can I, I, there's part of me that feels like there's a little bit of a parallel which was that Hillary Clinton um the, it was sort of her approach at least early on was 
to kind of play it safe, right? The presumptive candidate to sort of play it safe. And then that made her open to critiques and to attacks that she was responding to instead of sort of putting out this this platform. And that changed as it went on, as she kind of had to, you know, fight more. But I, I can see a little bit of that pattern with Biden, who's trying to play it safe, which will work in the for the short term. But as other candidates get people excited, um, that's he's he's going to be playing from behind at that point, trying to get people excited. I, I if I if there were a predicted market on is Joe Biden going to be the nominee, I would buy a lot of no shares. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, realistically, compared to the the first debates, this was significantly better for yeah. him. In, in if you look at the the detail of his responses, especially in his um, his back and forth with with Kamala Harris, it was really about kind of dismantling her her platform and and her statistics and saying this is frankly ridiculous and you know Obamacare is is good and we need to you know um, rearrange things and and have it evolve and there's a better way of doing it than completely dismantling the system and he was effective at that but then he was the old guy who didn't know how to how to present himself and he didn't he didn't seem strong what he was saying realistically was was very measured and and in any other context and at any other point in history, it would have been very effective. I think it's just it's it's we're, we're in fantasy land. But this to, point. Your, to the point you started with, right? The, there were times where the all the other candidates, when the moderators would st- say your time is up, they would continue to finish their thought. Biden he almost stops. Was, he yeah. was almost looking for okay, good, mm-hmm. I can stop now. And there's a there's I, I mean he's again seventy six is different mm-hmm. than somebody who's in their fifties and I mean, it's just it's it it the age felt. A, like a factor last night yeah which is is sad like again i i i felt more in tune to what he was saying Mm -hmm. um compared to almost anybody else on that stage um in in the last debate it was it it was not necessarily centrist um but it was it was understandable it was approachable and it was it was even keel it was measured It, it sounded like it made sense yeah um and then he talked about going to 30 over 30 yeah he does have the he does have the comfortable yeah. uh, thing going for him for people who just are tired of this political atmosphere you know and i just want things to be i don't want to have to think about politics <laughs> yeah. right then then joe biden has that going for him yeah, yeah. you're that right so be his platform his bar you is tired low. question mark yeah his bar is low so he doesn't yeah. have to be great he doesn't have to be obama he doesn't have to be dynamic but he's got to be it's got to be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's let's move on. On Sunday, President Trump announced that Dan Coats would step down as the Director of National Intelligence. The Director of National Intelligence, or DNI, serves as the head of the U.S. intelligence community. Coates' time as DNI was filled with tension as he frequently angered the president by offering unwelcome assessments on Russia, North Korea, Iran, and elsewhere. To replace Coates, Trump has tapped one of his most vigorous defenders, Representative John Ratcliffe. Uh, Ratcliffe would bring a starkly different perspective to the office and is likely to be much more in line with Trump's thinking. Ratcliffe is a third-term Republican from Texas who has embraced Mr. Trump's theories about Russia, the Russian investigation, and was among the most sharpest questioners of Robert Mueller at last week's hearing. Phil Dan Coates was considered one of the, quote, adults in the administration, someone willing to stand up to Trump. Some within the intelligence community are a little worried what this shift spells for U.S. foreign policy. What's what's your thoughts? Uh, yeah, we should we should be worried. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, so for, for no other reason, I, if you take the party identity off of it um, and, and whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, 
you you want you don't want a yes man as the person who's giving intelligence briefings to the president. You want someone who's going to be, you know, brutally honest about about things. That's going to push back against the president. That's going to challenge ideas. You want you know I, I think about. Um, in you know at foreign policy analysis when people look at different presidents the difference between like an lbj and a kennedy i think we've talked about that on here before kennedy who sort of uh, who would who would have people play devil's advocate who would have sort of different ideas within the room and lbj who essentially bullied everyone into going along with him and the outcome was was pretty starkly different right you end up with with vietnam and stuff like that under the lbj so regardless of whether it's a republican or a democrat you don't want someone in this position in an intelligence position who's just going to do what the president wants that you don't want a you don't want a pr person and and so dan coates uh, you know he he did that um pretty well i think uh, and and Radcliffe is is he is the sort of classic Trump appointee, right? He has he has done his work in Congress, essentially fighting Trump's fight on Trump's behalf, and now he's being rewarded for it. Which I would have I would have a problem with in any position, but a position like this, it's particularly concerning. I think, mm-hmm. Nick. Okay. Well, yeah. especially, you know, for me, I, I agree. Like, I, I loyalist, have a advocate thing. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please go ahead. The loyalist in the intelligence community you don't want, right? You want somebody who's going to push back just for the appearances that it's so important when the president goes to the American public to feel like you can trust what the intelligence community is bringing forward. And that, that matters. Because uh, the last thing you, you want is anybody thinking that this, this information has been politicized. Mm-hmm. The other thing to think about is that, or that strikes me is that this is, there's been a shift in Trump appointees. The, the, the initial wave of loyalists were knuckleheads, right? It was the Scaramucci's, the guys that didn't know anything, they weren't very good. And then you got Bill Barr, who's the attorney general. He's good, he's smart, and he's a loyalist. And Radcliffe strikes me as a similar dynamic. He's somebody who knows how to play the game. He's smart, he believes in a strong executive. And he's going to be strategic in allowing President Trump to get what you want. And, you know, that, that, that could be very dangerous when you think about the role of intelligence. Dan Coats is a strong Republican. There's nobody that's going to suggest Dan Coats is a liberal, uh, but he was willing to push back. So this, this will be a very, very interesting post. What, from, so this is a Senate-confirmed position, yes. right? Yes. So it'll have to go before the Senate. Um, what do you? What's your take on that? I I don't know how to feel about that. So if I'm in the Senate and and Ratcliffe comes up as a nominee for DNI, um, I think he'll be terrible at the job. But there's also a part. There's also another aspect, which is that the president is entitled to appoint people that Correct. he wants yeah, to exactly. to surround himself mm-hmm. with. And so, this is one of those where I, you can argue that he's. Um, I mean, I, I suppose you could make an argument that he is unqualified or or is disqualified based on some of the stuff he's said or done regarding, you know, Russia or whatever, that he's going to essentially put uh, the president loyalty to the president above the intelligence community. That could be your argument. But otherwise, he's he's qualified. Right. But mm-hmm. but I think potentially disastrous. So what which way do you go? Do you go that the president has a right to choose a disaster if he wants or your job is to prevent a disaster? Right. That's your yeah. that's your job as the Senate to uh, confirm people. I, I don't know which way I go on that. If I'm Senate Republicans, 
turning down one of his appointees is a huge political loss. Correct. Right. They're not willing to call him out on some of his racist tweets. I don't think they're going to push down one of his nominees. That's my guess. So but he's going to yeah. go through. Yeah. Sure. It's more a, a, a sort of a hypothetical yeah. principle thing. Like how how do you how do you handle somebody like this? Well, and there, apparently there was some trepidation from the from the Republicans in the Senate about this. But I, I think you're right. It'll eventually go through. So here's my question. And is two people who talk about norms all the time yes. in the context of, of presidential power yeah. and, and especially in an area of the imperial presidency. Is this the right process to have people appointed? Should we allow them to have just free reign to appoint people like this without mm. realistically almost any oversight whatsoever? Going for it, like realistically, we would not have this conversation yeah. if not for this particular presidency. Right, right. So, I, I mean, this is just kind of an understood thing that, you know, yeah. people don't do this. And we should have, you know, people who question, you know, yeah. and, and question you on, on your on your instincts. Is this the right process that we should have? That's a, it's a great question. Do, should we look? I know. Should we look backwards <laughs> to see what the person has done or, or give the president the benefit of the doubt and let that person get in there? And then right. judge them on their conduct. I think you have to go with the latter. I I still think it's important to defer to the president to allow them to put together their team. Why? Because it's there are other like partisanship is not a good thing. Like we talk about Supreme Court appointees all the time. The partisanship there is really really troubling. And I I'm willing to defer to the president unless they're egregious. And I I don't know if I I, I think Radcliffe's going to be terrible, but Trump should have his own team. Well, it, here's here's another way of, of potentially I, I'm making myself feel better about it by thinking of it this way. <laughs> uh, he he is the director of intelligence. He is not the intelligence community. So right, so the sure. vast majority of people who are doing the intelligence gathering, um, they're, they're all career, uh, you know, intelligence officers. They're there. They're not partisan. They're doing their job. Uh, the, the DNI is essentially taking all of that intelligence community stuff and presenting it to the president. If the president is unwilling or unopen to the you know reports that he doesn't like, then the effect is the same whether it's the DNI presenting it or whether it's the a career official giving it to Trump. It, this is just you know the DNI is just essentially playing the role of the voice in Trump's head, sure. right? And so um, in that sense, I mean that that's they could still do good, right? Because they could they could push they could. The, push yeah. the president to to think about things. But in other ways, you know, the intelligence community isn't going away. They're not going to quit coming up with challenging intelligence just because the DNI is a is a, a Trump crony. I, I I would agree with that. Yeah, the intelligence community outside of that the, that discussion, realistically all that information still gets funneled down into what yeah. half a dozen One. people. Yeah. And, yeah. and realistically, we've you know, we've talked about it on on many occasions that these people either don't tr trust Trump and just give him information that they think he should look at or dumb it down in a way that either appeals to him or doesn't give him the full story of the situation. And we're talking about the adults in the room. We're saying the adults in the room are, are gone at this point. We, again, have talked about it on many occasions. So, mm -hmm. I, like, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a to me, that's a that's a scary mm -hmm. concept. Yeah. And that Maybe. doesn't seem like like. As much as I would like to think that they're going to present the information in a way that is is full and comprehensive, while we're also having discussion that this person is going to be terrible and is a Trump loyalist, like how do you how do you yeah. rectify those two sides? 
you elect good presidents, right? I mean, I think that's the right. thing where that's you, true. you 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 make that matter, and I and not to be that flippant, but you you make that matter when you're selecting a president to say somebody who's not going to elect a loyalist, somebody who's going to do a good job. I think that. And, and- on that point, let me, you know, one of the criticisms to go back to the previous topic, which was about or, or to talk about the debates, the sorts of questions that come up in the debates or that you follow in those debates are questions that imagine the president has a magic wand that yes. can make anything oh. happen that mm. they want. And a lot of that they can't. But there are certain things that the president can do very easily. And those have to do with foreign policy. They have to do with appointments. And that's the sort of question that would yeah. be great at a debate to ask people about right. how are you going to choose a secretary of state? How are you going to choose, uh, you know, a director of Nat- what's your philosophy? on filling your cabinet you know those are the sorts of questions that could actually tell you a lot about a person and how they would how they would lead mm-hmm. um, and and but they're not you know sexy or exciting oh. I'd like to um, table that and go back to the question of uh, racism if we could <laughs> yeah. which happened about half a dozen times let's talk about the death penalty yes let's all right so la- late last week Attorney General William Barr announced that the federal government after a hiatus of more than a decade and a half will start executing prisoners again in December in the 16 years since the the last federal execution, those sitting on death row, even those who had exhausted their appeals, remained in prison. In announcing the decision, uh, Barr stated, quote, the Justice Department upholds the rule of law, and we owe it to the victims and their families to carry forward the sentence imposed by our justice system, unquote. The United States has grim as a, has the grim distinction of being one of the few countries in the world that still permits the government to kill its own people in the name of justice. America is joined in this regard by China, North Korea, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, In 2015, Pope Francis called for the end of the use of the death penalty, but President Trump is a longtime and vocal supporter of capital punishment. You may remember that in March of last year, uh, Trump called for the death penalty for drug dealers and proudly said that he got the idea from the Chinese president. that's good, Nick. They're real good at it. Yes. Actually, they are like off the charts, China. <laughs> yeah. Some have speculated that the action was taken because it is likely to stir up fresh interest in an issue that fits squarely within Trump's culture war. Uh, Phil, this caught many of us by surprise. Uh, what's your read on this most interesting recent development? Yeah, I mean, I, this is uh, this is it's a surprise. It seems to have come out of nowhere, and it is not surprising in that it seems to fit into Trump's uh, mo and his his sort of worldview, um, and is likely to be popular uh, with a lot of the people that are in his base. Um, I, you know, I, it's a question. There's part of me that I, so I, I am I am I grew up. I feel like I've talked about it on here. I grew up very conservative. I grew up very pro death penalty and over the years of my life have shifted in the opposite direction. Um, and so I, I'm not, I'm not happy about this, but I do think that it's a debate that we need to think about and talk about in the country. So if it sparks that debate and that discussion, then, then that's great. And you know, criminal justice stuff came up in the debate last night. Some Cory Booker, I think did well on that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I don't, I don't know how, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, we do stand out in a in a in a strange way um, internationally uh, with this. I don't. Well, what's your take on it? Well, you know, I, I think about so both Phil and I we teach international politics. We we travel a lot, and when you get outside of the United States and you talk to people about the death penalty, they look at us as if we're some barbarians, right? Because right. especially if you go to Europe and actually much of the world, I mean, it's. There's different numbers in terms of states that have the death penalty or penalty or versions of the death penalty, whether they enact it. But it's 
there's basically like 10 or 15 countries that still use this regularly. And they're not the kind of countries the United States wants to be associated with. Right. So it's, it's one of those things where I feel like we were moving in a certain direction. Um, but there's not that political will yet to make that final step. And, and Trump is now pushing back against this. So I'm, I'm curious to see where the public is on I, this. I feel like the majority of Americans are opposed to the death penalty now. I, I'd have to look up the statistics. But I, I feel like in, in the not too distant past, that yeah. number crossed the 50% threshold. I would love to have Tom here right now because yeah. I would like to ask him as a libertarian, who I would assume would have issues with the government choosing who gets to live and die. Yeah. Um, but also this kind of fits into his argument. And the, the Trump, you know, the, the the Justice Department is making that argument, which is that this is the law. And if you want to change the law, the law can be changed. Right. right. Congress can change the law. Mm -hmm. But as it currently stands, this is this is allowed. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, it's an example of the U.S. had moved on past it, but not because the law had been changed. It was just we kind of decided to quit abiding by it. Yeah. Um, realistically, in terms of the death penalty, I'm I'm, I'm not. I'm not a huge proponent of the act itself. I'm more a, a huge opponent of the um, years and years that we hold people on death row yeah, um, waiting for that. that. And the cost of that and realistically the, the psychological impact that it has on, on the, the person themselves and, and, and the, the system as a whole. Um, and now I lost my train of thought. Um, something along the lines of what the hell? What, what did you just say? <laughs> well, while you're thinking, Nick, one quick thing: there was a study a few years ago that found that a little above four percent of those sentenced to death are innocent. Innocent, mm -hmm. yeah. Which you know, for me, you know, I can, I can, I can be open to an argument about the death penalty. I think it's it's somewhat hypocritical, but nevertheless. If somebody's really terrible, right? You know, little Hitler, or whatever. Not little Hitler, but like old Hitler. Because <laughs> um, you know, little, little Hitler hasn't committed any crimes yet. But um, but the reality, if you if you have a system where you can't assure a hundred percent accuracy, you gotta throw that system out. You I can't thought... make any mistakes with this, and we do all the time. Oh, somebody made the point that. the other day: if if four percent of airplanes crashed, right, <laughs> would right. would we still be sending planes up all the time? Right. Hell no, right? We would. That would be yeah. So yeah. Um, no, so yeah, I, yeah. I remember my point. So uh, realistically, is uh, I, I think it is to your point, Phil. I think it's good that we we do kind of renew this debate in the sense of, um, and in the wider context of we talk or that we talk about um, on the podcast that this realistically is the law, and this is Congress's duty to change that. And it seems like in in a lot of these situations where they're talking about immigration or the death penalty or health care, um, they they have been derelict in, in their duty and, and haven't really given us uh, definitive answers on, on anything that can just be understood by, by the entire country. Whether you agree with them or not, it's it's settled business. Um, and they, I, I just, I, I don't, I think it is somewhat a, a political strategy to do this because Trump knows that Congress is not going to move on this. It's, it's an interesting point, Nick, because, you know, you think about the country maybe have, maybe moving in a direction where you could have a sort of bipartisan decision to say it's sure. time to move past mm -hmm. this. But when yep. Trump reinserts himself there, the parties and the system just locks in a way where mm -hmm. this is likely. I, I wonder in the next debate, will this be an issue for the Democrats? Will they will say, well, we Show should. Show of hands. Right. We should end the death penalty and all the Democrats' hands go up. And then Republicans say, oh, we got to take the other side. And yeah, yeah we no room for progress. <laughs> no. All right. Speaking of killing people, uh, Russia. Uh, Putin is back up to his old habits of poisoning people again. Recently, a Russian opposition politician, Alexei Navalny, uh, was admitted to a hospital with symptoms that indicate 
uh, poisoning. He was taken from a Moscow prison where he was serving a 30-day sentence after being arrested last week for calling people to attend an anti-government protest. His personal doctor insists that he was deliberately poisoned with a chemical agent after he showed up with severe, uh, severe allergic reaction. His face and eyes were heavily swollen and much of his upper body was covered with a rash. Sounds like Phil after a weekend of hiking. <laughs> so, all of this took place during a wave of massive protests in Moscow, where thousands have taken to the streets demanding fair elections and political reform. At one protest, the, the Moscow police detained more than a thousand people in one of the biggest crackdown, crackdowns in years. Phil, would Putin really poison a guy in his own jail? That seems unreasonable. And what do you make of the broader protest movement in Russia, which might be the more interesting question. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah he definitely poisoned this guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is one of those where if you look at Russian politics over the past you know, 20 years, this is, this is a clear pattern. You speak up. People, prominent critics of Putin, prominent activists who are moving against Putin – end up dead um, and oftentimes by poisoning so yeah it's not you know that is there a chance that he actually had some sort of allergic reaction yes um, but are the odds that he was poisoned absolutely yeah that's all <laughs> really quickly the the Russian defense this is like we wouldn't poison a guy in our own jail I mean they literally said that they're yeah. like who would do that <laughs> they would right <laughs> so literally you. you wonder why don't, it seems like you just just killed a guy right, right. in your own jail like they're yeah. already corrupt um, yeah, I mean, I think the movement, the the protest movements are are interesting. I mean, these are protests that are that have to do with actually local elections, right? They're about mm. the they're about Moscow, so they're not actually about Putin directly, but it is about free and fair elections, about democracy, the ability to actually stand, um, you know, for election. And uh, so Putin has has been able to kind of distance himself a little bit to like not intervene. But so they're, they're, the protests aren't directly about him, but they're indirectly very much about him. They're about a political system that he has established firmly over the past decades. Um, I mean, this happens over and over again. I mean, this is the extent to which there there is widespread opposition to Putin in Russia. Um, the Russian government acts as an agent of Putin himself, right, and and cracks down on these. And it's where once somebody has control over that system, the difficulty of these democratic protests breaking through get harder and harder. It, it feels like there has been, you know, democratic... Um, this democratic movement has been it's not I was gonna say bubbling below the surface but above the surface mm -hmm. for a long time right but um, with the the power of the government continuing to crack down on it I you know it, it'll be really interesting to see when Putin goes someday which you know may very well be decades from now it may be when he's dead but you know the system has been made so much about one person that what will happen when that power vacuum goes away is um, I mean, it could be encouraging, but it, it, it's, it leaves me pretty depressed to think about what that will look like. Yeah. Nick? Yeah, they're terrible people. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, as you know, you, you look at Putin, and he's such a, a proponent of the Soviet Union and, and the Soviet style of, of governance that you can't allow, even if we're talking about you know, local issues, it, is a it has the potential of growing into something greater that could endanger the overall system of, of, of government and he is not going to have any of that shit um, it's I, I mean it's relatively encouraging that there is as much of a, a, um, an anti-government movement regardless of what we're talking about um, local elections or, or local governments but it, it, it seems like there's a, a growing sentiment that whatever Russia has turned into is not what it should be um, 
it's it's going to be a long road though like phil said it could very well be with with putin's death and it, it's more of a a weirdly soviet monarchical mon monarchical system yeah, is yeah, that the like word it. i like it it's very flemmy um but um it, it, yeah it's 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 just scary to think that even two decades ago it seemed like this system was it was effectively done it was it was gone um, after you know fifty years of of just horrific acts and and, and whatnot, but um, I, he's he's just he's I, I don't want to make this sound like it's positive, but he's a, he's an extremely interesting political figure, oh, yeah. effective um, too, yeah. an extremely effective political figure, and I can see why why Trump talks about him as much as he does. Yeah. But um, in terms of a political movement and what Russia is at this point, it's just. It's just a horrible place, man. Well, and it's, it's somewhat telling terrible. that they, you know, so there have been little protests have sparked over the years. Mm -hmm. It's telling that the Russians cracked down in the way they did, because this is the biggest crackdown in a decade, which to me suggests that the government realizes, or Putin realizes, that his old tactics of propaganda, controlling the media, intimidation, not letting people, those aren't working anymore. Like, there's a groundswell of movement against him, and he's got to move to more draconian, more authoritarian tactics, which suggests that this farce of being a democracy is even gone. So uh, this, I think this is a sign of, of worse things to come, that he's going to continue to track, crack down. The other thing is his approval rating has is, is, is always historically been in the upper 80s or 90s. It's down to 68, what? which is still kind of crazy <laughs> that he's that high. Uh, but it, well, it does suggest there's a movement against him. Also, people who, who I mean, I'm, I'm not a Russian scholar, but people who, who study Russia talk about that doing a poll in yeah. Russia is also, I mean, that 68% <laughs> right. is, is not an accurate reflection of actually his level of popularity. I think Putin is behind everybody who's, like the but, pollsters that are out there like, uh, do you like Putin? He's right here. <laughs> the fact that rigged polls are dropping from, you know, 80% approval to 60, mid-60s yes. is telling. It's okay. It'll yeah. go back up to 80 in a couple weeks after they <laughs> right. kill all those people. Don't worry about it. All right, let's finish by talking taxes, Nick. So California approved <laughs> legislation this week that requires presidential candidates to release their taxes if they want to be eligible for California's primary ballot. The wall, the wall, the law will go wall. <laughs> the law will go into effect immediately and require candidates for president or governor to submit copies of their tax returns from their last five years with the California Secretary of State at least three months ahead of their state primary. That means Mr. Trump would have to provide his tax returns by the end of this year. Obviously, an attempt to get uh, at Trump's taxes, this will no doubt escalate the running feud between the White House and California. The state is currently involved in more than 40 lawsuits with the Trump administration on issues ranging from environmental regulations to immigration. There are nearly a dozen, there are nearly a dozen similar bills in active, that are active in other states, including New York, New Jersey, Washington, and Pennsylvania. Uh, the Trump administration has condemned the legislation, calling it blatantly unconstitutional. Phil, there are some serious and really, really interesting constitutional issues presented by this law. What's your reaction to California's decision? Uh, so, I, you know, I haven't read up on the constitutionality issues. Uh, do you know off the top of your head, like, what are the constitutionality concerns? So the one, the only other way, only, only other time the Supreme Court weighed in was on whether states can impose qualifications on members of Congress. 
that are stricter than the Constitution itself. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that for members of Congress. Now, there's been this really interesting conversation about whether this is similar and different, and you're seeing constitutional scholars on both sides of this Mm. saying, no, it is exactly the same, and no, it is very, very different. So basically the Constitution says you have to be 35 and you have to be a naturalized citizen, and so to add something to that is unconstitutional. Right. Huh. That's interesting. I, I um, it would be interesting to get. I would, I would like to hear Tom's yeah. take on that because I could, I could see it saying that, uh, the the discu- the list you have to meet these requirements. That those are, um, yeah. you know, requirements, but they're not necessarily exhaustive. There might be other things that you also have to do. And that's when um, it gets really interesting. Yeah. 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 So I, I mean, uh, from I don't know about the constitutionality of it, but on the other on the other side of it, um, I I kind of like this, and and it's not necessarily from you know. Uh, just take it take it away from whether it's attacking Trump or not, because I don't see this as really affecting Trump. If a lot of states do it, it would. But in this case, Trump will get the Republican nomination with or without California. So if he gets the you know, if he's on the ballot um, and, and again, you know, he's not going to win California in the presidential election yeah. anyway. And so it's unlikely to actually um, punish him. But we've talked a lot or I have talked a lot. Um, about norms and how we had a lot of faith that norms, the, all these unspoken rules of how politics would go, um, we just we just had faith that people would abide by them, and and they don't necessarily. And so, what do you do when they don't? If it's important, you make it a law, right? So you take that norm and you actually legislate it and make it a law. So if you if it really is, you know, if it's essential that we that that candidates for president are financially transparent, that we want to know that they are not, you know, in you know in uh, uh, hock to some you know a, a foreign power or whatever, then don't just uh, don't just count on people's goodwill. Don't count on the fact that oh, tradition says that for 40 years every president has done this. If it's important, then make it a law. And so I, the fact that California is doing that, I think is great. Um, you know, it, beyond that, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily have a have an issue with this. I, I can see the constitutionality issues yeah. that that come up, but uh, but the idea of saying this is important, and so rather than just expecting people to abide by it because we say it's important, let's actually make it a rule that you have to do. I think that's great. Phil brought up norms, and that was persuasive to me, Nick. <laughs> I was going to argue against it, but you know, I gotta so here, think more about it. So here's the norm in this situation. Realistically, as you're doing this as a single state, which realistically we know is going to vote for a Democratic candidate anyways, you're negating your other part of the population as a single state. If you want to change the law, that's fine. Do it at the federal level then and mandate that. Mm. At this point, you're you're just negating a significant portion of of your state's population from participating in an election, which realistically seems to me a greater constitutional challenge than anything at this point. So, I I, I mean, I just, I I get where they're coming from. I completely understand that. But if you're going to do something like this, we're, we're talking about the highest office in the land that every citizen should have a right to have their, have their, their vote count towards, you're you're yeah. taking that choice away from them. So I, I don't I, understand how that yeah. would function. I want to I want to push back on that because I, I would no. see this as limiting Trump, not Republican voters, right? I mean, this doesn't this doesn't take away Republicans' ability to vote for president any more than the age requirement of 35 does. If you were to say that, hey, the most popular Republican is 33, and this is you know this isn't fair to Republicans because they don't get to vote for the guy they really like. I, it's it's a 
you know, it's a limitation, but it, it applies to Democrats. It applies to Republicans. It applies across the board. It's basically just saying this is this is something we think is important. Sure. Yeah, I understand that. But re- I mean, this, the the context of this is if they don't provide their tax returns, whether they're governor right. or president, that they're not on the ballot not at the ballot. that point. Right. Right. Yeah. right. So you've taken but, away their choice. So so as I think about this, there's a couple things that, that, that strike me. One, I mean, I, I think the fact that Trump hasn't released his taxes is terrible, right? And when you made the case, Phil, I feel like, yes, we talk about norms. And when a president's going to ignore them, we should impose laws to say these matter. I also think that the some of this goes back to the voters. If we're going to say that that senior taxes matters, we should hold a candidate candidate accountable if he's not going to release his taxes. That should be a bigger deal. The other thing that troubles me about this is where do we draw the line? Taxes seems reasonable. What about medical records? Mm-hmm. Uh, what about uh, domestic litigation? Can you say like all litigation about spousal abuse? That. What about illegal children? Can you say like you know any, any? What about mental illness? Have mm-hmm. you ever uh, met with somebody? You know, I mean, all the there's a whole. Are host... you advocating for privacy in this situation? Y- yes. Yes. What? I, well, the I mean, hell, I, so dude. here's the here's the issue, right? There there obviously is a line at some point for privacy, and where do we stop that? And so if you start to allow a state to begin to ask some of these questions. I don't know where you say it's appropriate for a state to do this and where it's not appropriate. So that mm-hmm. that troubles me a little bit, but I think I wish, you know, the tax thing is is the reason Trump is not releasing these is cuz there's something to hide and right. Yeah, so I, I don't know how you get around this. Um, so I I, I I like what California is doing, but I'm worried about the precedent it will set. Mhm. No. Fair enough. Yeah. Oh, man. We got through a lot, Nick. That was exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Race, taxes, the death penalty, Putin. God. Anyways. Yeah. (laughs) On that note, if you guys, um, again, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, if you like the podcast, have questions, comments, viewer suggestions, um, anything like that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, uh, P-O-L. Uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, the beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics. Um, the podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market. Pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. I personally, besides my earlier prediction, would look for Kamala Harris's stock to go down significantly because <laughs> um, she's aloof and uh, doesn't think that anyone that's polling lower than her matters. Um, on that note, though, uh, if you're uh, <laughs> for for listeners, those who use the uh, the promo link uh, when opening up a new account, uh, you receive a twenty dollar match on your first deposit. I swear to God, I'm gonna get this out like in full sentences. Um, so if you open up a twenty dollar account, Predicted will match uh, that twenty dollars, giving you forty dollars to use on Predicted. Um, just use the promo link predicted.org/promo/barstoolpaul20 uh, to check it out. Um, did I miss anything? That was good, Nick. Oh yeah. God. Text Barstool to 30330. 30300003. We'll throw a one in there. Um, All right, guys. Well, uh, yeah, we will see you next week then. Cheers. 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 Cheers.